Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Welcome, friends, to the Church Leaders Podcast. I am your host, Jason Day. And this week, I had the privilege of being joined in the studio by Brady Boyd, pastor of New Life Church right here in beautiful Colorado Springs, Colorado. Brady has served at New Life for over a decade, and they'll be launching their seventh campus in 2020. He has led the church in making a significant community impact that is meeting brokenness with the love and beauty of Jesus. He's written several best-selling books, including his latest, Remarkable, Living a Faith Worth Talking About. Now, on this week's episode, Brady and I discuss how local churches can shift outrage to outreach and move beyond the distractions that the enemy often uses to suppress the church and instead begin making a powerful kingdom difference in our communities. Brady shares how pastors can approach political issues in a manner that embraces unity and places the church in a position of radical influence. This is an episode you'll definitely want to share with your team, so please won't you join me in my conversation with Brady Boyd. Brady, welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast live in the studio. So good to have you with us again. Yeah, it's so good to be here. It's always fun to talk with you, Jason. Awesome. Uh, Brady, as we look back at those who made up the early church, you know, we look at the first century and we see that they had more than just a compelling vision, um, which they did have, but they also possessed this living faith. And this living faith was something that uh, made others look at them more closely made people kind of take note. As you've written, um, there was something remarkable about how they lived out their faith. Well, they were living in a world that was uh, extremely violent, extremely sexualized, extremely dark. Uh, They were living under most of the people that that we read about in the Bible were under Roman oppression. So the very fact that they lived uh, lives with one person, monogamous, celibate, pure lives, automatically separated them from the crowd. The fact that they were honest in their business dealings, that they cared for one another, that they served the poor, that they saw value in every human life, automatically made them stand out, I mean, in a remarkable way from the place where they were living. I mean, Roman Greek world that we're talking about, when we read the kind of the sterilized version of the Bible and we don't realize the world they were living in, Quite honestly, the Roman world, the Greek world, and even parts of the Jewish world, it was such a dark place to live. There was no political freedom, there was no economic freedom, and there was certainly no freedom for women and for slaves. And so for when people came into the Christian faith, right away something changed in them, and they immediately separated themselves from the world in which they were living. But not only were they separated, they were called to go back into that world and be an influence. And, and so it created this dynamic with people where uh, they, they realized they were different, but they could not be separate. And that created a powerful combustion, a powerful element in that early church where they realized, I have been changed by the gospel, and now I'm compelled to go back into the dark world in which I was rescued, and I am called to bring light back into that world. And uh, they, they saw that. They saw that as a, fir- a real calling on their lives. They, they I think the early church had a sense of mission and a sense of purpose about their lives that we may we may be missing today, especially in our North American context. But they felt compelled to go share the good news with a world that was really dangerous. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So let's let's go ahead and fast forward twenty some centuries, right, to to today. 
And as as we look at um, kind of the the culture and the landscape for the church today, 21st century church, I'd say that we there, there's still the the kind of compelling vision, you know, that that God has given the church, but that kind of remarkable lived out faith that you write about in your new book, Remarkable. You know, what does that faith look like? It seems as if the church in in many conversations in our culture is not looked upon as remarkable or maybe even influential. Oftentimes it's looked upon as uh, not even being relevant, right? It's almost dismissed at this point. Well, I was thinking as I was writing this book, I I, I happened upon this story of a cargo ship that left uh, the, the United States and was headed to the Philippines. And this was like in the late 1990s. And it got into a storm. It was in across, going across the Pacific Ocean, and it, it, uh, a big storm came. And the boat had these cargo containers on top, and the cargo containers got knocked off the boat in the middle of the storm. Well, inside these massive cargo containers were rubber ducks and bath toys. And, of course, as the, as the cargo thing sunk under the water, the pressure exploded, and these rubber ducks popped up. Literally hundreds of thousands of rubber ducks popped up on the Pacific Ocean and started drifting with the currents to the four parts of the world. In fact, they, they started finding rubber ducks in Alaska and Japan and Australia. And these rubber ducks, they were headed for the Philippines, but the rubber ducks ended up everywhere. And I think this is a picture of the American church. We were headed to a, we had a sense of mission, but somewhere along the way, some storms have, uh, have come into the church and we have ended up with mission drift. I think I think every church leader that I know, they have sincere motives. They really want to fulfill the Great Commission, but I think we've been distracted. I think we've gotten off course. I think we've lost our sense of true north. We've lost our sense of, of divine purpose. And so we I think we're doing things with the right intentions, but we're we are I, I think we've lost our sense of clarity about what we're really supposed to be up to. And the church has chosen some cheap substitutes to the original Great Commission, in my opinion. Yeah, that's that, that's good. I, and I love that imagery because, it. I mean, you can kind of see exactly like just floating along with the current, right? Wherever it kind of takes us um, is kind of where we've ended up. And so we're in a place now in the church, and not that it's all doom and gloom, and, and I know that we have some great stories that we can talk about, but there is some challenges. There are definitely some challenges before us in the church. And as we're looking at those, there are a few things that you have pointed out that the church kind of – tends to kind of fall into these these pitfalls. You know, it just becomes kind of easy for the church to move in a, a few different ways. Can you kind of talk us through some yeah, of those? I can. So the uh, every a lot of churches in the last 2,000 years, a lot of church bodies, church communities have found themselves at the center of political power, of economic power. And really, for the last 150 years in America, the local church in America has been at the center of political and economic power. But that is changing now. Mm-hmm. We lost the culture war. I hate to be the one that break bad news, <laughs> but we've lost the culture war in America. So now the church in every category and in every in every instance that I can think of, the church now is being pushed to the margins of the culture. We're no longer at the center of economic and political power in our country anymore. It used to be that if you wanted to be successful in your local community as a businessman, you had to be a part of the local church. Now that's not even uh, necessary mm-hmm. anymore. Church affiliation, church uh, uh, attendance is no longer necessary for political or economic success. So the church now, our voices have been marginalized and we've been diminished. So how then should the church respond when it realizes we're no longer the center of power in our country? 
Mm. Well, over the last 2,000 years, churches have had to decide how to respond to that. And they usually have made three choices. One is they become integrators, where they just blend in with the culture. Uh, they, they become a part of the culture. They really don't do anything to stand out from the culture. They go along to get along. Mm. Well, the problem with that is, is that we're called to be salt and light that we're called to actually make a difference. So integrating into the culture is not, uh, is not even an option for us. And if you want to read something fascinating, all three of these things Jesus addresses in Matthew chapter 5 in these very opening statements of the Sermon on the Mount. He says we're to be a city on a hill, we're to be salt and light, we're to go into all the world. So all, all, of, these, all of these ideas are right in the, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So the first, the first temptation for the church is to go along to get along to become integrators. The second one is to become instigators, where uh, we yell at the darkness, mm. where we become angry about how things are changing. And I see this a lot with uh, people like my, the generation of my mom and my dad. My mom and my dad, my dad has passed away, but my mom's in her 70s. And that generation has really never known an America without Christianity at its core. But now that world has changed. Just in the last 20 years, my mom and her generation has seen America shift violently in some ways away from our Judeo-Christian beliefs. And and the temptation for her and for her generation is to be mad about that, to be angry. Now, my mom's not an angry person, but there are people that tend to stand and yell at the darkness as if that's going to change the environment. So we get angry on Facebook. We get angry at the changes. We we want to re-engage with the culture war that we've already lost. And it just is a common sense. Uh, our anger will not change the hearts of people. Mm-hmm. I have just, I've never met someone who came to a believing faith in Christ because someone got mad at them and, and mm-hmm. won an argument. Right. Our goal is not to win an argument. Our goal is to, in some cases, to defend our faith, but our goal is to win people's hearts. And we don't do that with anger. So the instigators are pretty common in our culture, and social media makes them uh, even, you know, you can see that all over social media right now. So integrate instigate. And then the third group of people have kind of given up on being influenced of any kind. And so they've become isolators. They just isolate. They create these subcultures, these holy huddles. And so they, they form these pseudo communities around their common beliefs and they tend to separate themselves from the culture. They've given up on any hope of being an evangelist, of really influencing the culture. So they're really I, I think they're huddled up waiting for Jesus to return. They're hoping to survive mm. the, the, the cultural storm that's brewing all around them. And so they tend to, uh, tend to hang out with each other. They, they tend to be, believe what they, they have common beliefs, shared values, and they do very little in, in expressing that to anyone around them. In fact, they're very suspicious of their neighbors and friends that might vote differently than them or, or look differently than them or behave differently than them. And so integrators instigators, isolators. These are the three temptations for the American church right now, and, and a lot of churches are giving into that. Uh, let me ask you this, Brady. Uh, of those three, um, and we see, like, you know, the integrators, they kind of, you know, more of a compromise, right? They have lost their sense of conviction. Right, sure. right. And so then we have the um, the instigators that, like you said, they're just kind of, kind of angry. They're kind of defensive, you know? And oftentimes I, I have found that those who kind of fall in that camp tend to um, harken back to the glory days, like we need to return to something instead of looking ahead to what we might become. 
Yep, they they wanted they want us to go back to Mayberry, and they, they, we never, you know, Barney Fife and Andy Griffith are never going to run our country again. Right, and uh, oftentimes people have this sense of nostalgia, right? A sense of well, you, the good old days. Well, I tell people about this. Let me just make this one point yeah. about the good old days. Uh, I've had a few people challenge me on this recently. Say, Pastor Brady, but you weren't alive in the fifties and the sixties. When, when things were different in our country, I said, well, let me just stop you for a moment. In the 50s and the 60s, black people drank out of different water fountains mm. than white people. Uh, women had zero rights at, in the workplace. I said, so don't, I, don't tell me that the 50s and 60s were the golden age of America when we had no civil rights, we had no rights for women. Uh, there, there were a lot of broken places in our country that needed repair even in the 50s and the 60s, our country was far from perfect right. in what they would call the glory days. Uh, there are things that we have really made some advances on. Uh, I'm grateful for that we are now talking more openly about race and civil rights, that, that women are beginning to discover their place of freedom in the workplace, and they're beginning to have equal pay for equal work. So we've made advances, and oftentimes what we think were the glory days were not so glorious. Right. That, that, that's so true. And as you say that, it depends kind of who you were back in those glory days. If you had the place of power right, in right. the 50s and 60s. If you, were, uh, if you had the place of privilege and power, maybe the 50s and 60s did feel like the glory days to you. But for minorities, for women, right. for black people, 50s and 60s were a time of oppression. 50s, the 50s and the 60s and the 70s were not glory days for them. Right, right. That's so good. Um, and then the isolationists, and those are almost, like you said, kind of people are sitting around wanting just to kind of survive, right? They, they want to kind of pull in, get by, hopefully Jesus comes or life moves on, and, and they don't have to interact with too many other people. Yeah, it's the holy huddles. It's the churches that don't want to grow because they'd have to change. It's the churches that are content with their relationships, with their belief systems, and it's very hard to become a part of that community. It becomes clickish. It becomes a closed community. Right. And and Jesus, uh, actually, the most radical thing about Christianity in the, in the first century was how inclusive it was to slaves, to women who were coming out of prostitution. Women in general were given a voice and authority and power that they had never experienced before. Slaves were able to come in and sit next to wealthy business owners and have the same prayers and the same voice. There wasn't there wasn't uh, uh, exclusive seating for the wealthy, and then the poor had to sit in the back. Christianity actually created a circle of equality that allowed people from all races, all identities, to come into the place and find a common thread of forgiveness, to find a common pool of grace, and actually pray the same prayers, sing the same songs, and to realize that they had been redeemed by the same God that loved all of them equally. That was the power of the gospel early on. And so they, they, those services tended to culminate around uh, the agape love feast, the, ho- the, the holy feast, the, the, the sacraments, the, um, the body and the blood of Christ. They would take the bread and take the wine, and, and, and they would conclude their services with this celebratory joy that, uh, of forgiveness and grace and walk out of there with a sense of mission. And, and I think, I think the, the, the modern church— we have bec- we've become distracted by partisan politics. Probably, mm-hmm. we've been d- distracted by a culture war where we're trying to regain a sense of a bearing and footing that that we may or may not need to regain. Uh, and and so we've been distracted and we've lost our sense of innocence. The church, the church was always meant to be a place of innocent grace, in my opinion, where you could just feel the innocence, the grace forgiveness that's what church was always supposed to be a place of power healing for sure but it was also a place of grace 
and a place where you could find common friends and a common common unity, which is, which it means community. Right, right. And uh, that, I think that's what I'm longing for for the church to return to. And that's that's what you talk about this this fourth way because we have these uh, these these three pitfalls that we're tempted to fall into is and we we see churches like this all over the landscape, right? Um, but this fourth way, what what are some practical ways, Brady, for pastors and ministry leaders who are listening now? Um, who, who recognize, as, as you go through those three things, because I remember when I was reading through your book, I was like, man, that's dead on, right? It's just like, there, there's no arguing that, that those three um, kind of ways that, that many churches and many Christ followers are living, it, it's true, it's evident. We, we see this in our communities, right? We see this across the country here in the U.S. specifically. For pastors and ministry leaders who recognize that as well and say, yes, I, I see that, what's, what's next? Like, how, how do we move into this fourth way and move beyond the, these other places that are kind of holding, holding the church back. Well, I love when Jesus launched the church. He looked at Peter and says, you're Peter, and on this rock I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. He, he said something over the church that I think every pastor needs to remember, that what God ordains and what God births in the church cannot be taken away from us by an enemy. It can be taken away by our disobedience and by our sin, but the enemy cannot destroy what God begins. And I, I just, I'm just calling on pastors and leaders to turn their outrage into outreach, mm. to take the emotions that they're feeling, the, the anxiety that they're feeling about the culture, and start looking for practical ways to solve the problems. The church should be at the front of the line for every need that's going on in our community. We made a decision at New Life Church uh, about 10 years ago, I just said to our staff, it was a divine moment that the Lord gave me and said, Brady, you're going to be tempted to uh, be outraged about every single issue. I mean, you know, whether it's Chick-fil-A or, <laughs> or, or whatever it is, you know, whatever the, 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 the flavor of the day is right. that, that demands my Twitter outrage, take that emotion and that energy and begin to look for the places in your community that, that are in pain, that are in need. And so about 10 years ago, we began asking every community leader that would listen to us, the police chief, the, the mayor, the every nonprofit of any significance in our city, we began to take them to lunch, to coffee, and we would ask one question, where, where are the areas of pain in our city that are not being met? And it was fascinating that, that very few people had asked them that question. But we were sincere. Where, where are the places of pain in our city that are not being met? Where can we come to the aid of our city? How can we help our city? Now we know uh, we're a large church, but we can't meet. We can't solve every problem in the city. But we realized that there were some problems that we could solve, that we could make a dent in. And we discovered that there were about 800 homeless single moms living in our county who were living in their cars with their kids. And so we just had this audacious idea. Well, what if we bought an apartment complex and provided housing and healing and ministry to homeless single moms in our city? Now listen, we had we didn't have any money. We were $26 million in debt at New Life Church. We, we had no cash, we had no money, but we had a mandate. Mm. And we, by faith, went out and bought our first apartment complex. It was awful. It was like a $400,000 apartment complex, but which is cheap, and it was dirty, and it was infested. And we, we paid cash for it miraculously. We renovated it. I still today don't know how we raised that money mm. because we were in such dire straits as a church at the time. So we paid cash for it, we renovated it, and we moved our first group of moms into that home. And from that moment on, Jason, I can tell you something changed in the heart of our church. 
now my my church would be uh, they would be surprised, and you you know this. You're in my congregation. Right. You listen to me preach almost every week. They would be shocked if I got up and started going into an outrage about some culture thing. Right, right. My church would be stunned about that. I just don't, I, I'm concerned about a lot of things in our culture, but I just don't use the pulpit as a place of outreach. My church would not be shocked if I got up every Sunday and talked about Mary's home. Mm-hmm. They would not be shocked if I talked about a hunger issue or an issue in our city that we could come and help. And our church now has been conditioned by the Holy Spirit to respond to the needs of our city and not be outraged by the brokenness of our city. And I think if pastors would just come back to the original call, we are called by God to be a hospital, to be a place of healing. If your church would just begin to ask that one simple question, and I'm talking about big communities, small communities, whoever's listening to this podcast, if you're in a small town, go to the mayor of your town and ask him, where are the, where, what are the areas of pain in our city? What what is broken in our city that's not being fixed? I promise you he'll have a list of things. He or she will have a list of things to tell you. And, and you may not be able to solve a lot of the big problems in your city, but every church, regardless of size, can solve problems in their local community. There are things that can immediately, uh, your resources, your people, and I'm, I, I say this sincerely, I think most of the people in our church are waiting to be challenged to get back to mission. Mm-hmm. So the fourth way that I talk about in the book is to go back go back to this place of caring deeply about your city, caring deeply about the areas of pain in your city, looking for the places of brokenness inside inside the place of influence that you've been given and and putting your time, your energy, your emotions, your resources toward those areas and get back to being a remarkable people, a people living a faith worth talking about, putting putting our words into action, putting our money into into mission, and really becoming a people that's solving the biggest problems in our city. So, to, so here we are, 10 years later, we are expanding Mary's home. We just built two new buildings this year. I, I still don't know how we paid for it, but we've gone from $26 million of debt down to $11 million of debt. Um, and, and at the same time, paid cash for all of these projects. And it's, I really think the Lord was wanting to know if we would obey him. Mm. If there was a moment where we had to trust God and just say, Lord, if you're in this, God, if you're doing this, we want to be a pr- part of this. And when we began to cooperate with what God was already up to in our city, that's when things begin to change at our church. Our church become, became healthier. It, it, it began to grow again. Uh, the finances became uh, just started coming out of nowhere. Uh, some of the checks that we would get would just be uh, right on time. There's so many miracle stories along the way of God just providing mm-hmm. people coming out of nowhere saying, I want to serve, I want to give. We have a medical clinic right now, Jason, that we started uh, 11 years ago. Um, and we have seen 10,000 of the poorest women in our city. We have 100 medical providers volunteering at our medical clinic. Mm-hmm. I have a couple of paid staff, 98 more people in our community who are some, you know, they're either RNs or, or NPs or PAs. Um, they are all volunteering at this place. We have high-level professional people who are just waiting for an opportunity to serve. And that's just one example of things going on at the church. But we, it started with us turning our outrage about the changing culture and, and reversing that passion and saying, instead of just always being angry at things and being upset about things, let's get involved. 
Mm-hmm. Let's start loving people the way Jesus loved them. And I know I'm sounding preachy and probably this is sounding more like a sermon right now. But Jason, <laughs> thanks for giving me the space to rant about this. I feel so passionate about this right now. And I think our church is catching it at New Life. And your church, the leaders that are listening to this, your church will catch this right. when it becomes a part of your DNA. Right. And, and I love what you say, Brady, because um, oftentimes pastors can sit back and say, oh, well, you're New Life. You're a, you're a large, you know, a large church. But with large churches come large debt oftentimes <laughs> and, and large issues, you know, so it, it, it doesn't matter how large your church is, how small your church is. Like you said, you can, no matter what your community is, you can find out what some of the brokenness is there, what some of the pain is and begin praying about how can you um, step in and be the hands and feet of Christ in the midst of that. Right. Well, every church has the same mandate. Yeah. We all have the same call. Right. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptize them in the name of the Father, and, t- and teach them the ways of Christ. That's the Great Commission, right? But what preceded the Great Commission was the Great Commandment. Mm. And I think before I would tell you, go do the Great Commission, I think we got to get back to the Great Commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Until that becomes embodied into your church, the Great Commission won't ever make sense to them. Mm. That's and for good. us, we had to get back to the Great Commandment before we could ever re-engage with the Great Commission. And I, I, I just, I just believe this starts so much with the senior leadership of the church. It has, it starts with the the board of elders or deacons, whatever governance you have in your church. We have elders, so it has to start with us. Pastors and elders have to become Great Commandment people. We have to have this insatiable thirst to love people as we love ourselves. And to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and love our neighbor as ourself. And there are no greater commandments than those two things. It sums up all of the commandments, Jesus said. And until we get back to that, then the Great Commission will become a duty rather than a privilege. Mm. But once you once you really believe, once you really start loving your city and loving everyone in your city, that's when the Great Commission becomes a thrill. It's really joyful now to go into my city and talk to the mayor or talk to the police chief or fire chief or whoever it is. I have all I have relationships with all of them. But when I when I go to them and I ask them if I can help, what they know is Brady Boyd, New Life Church, the leaders of New Life Church, they love our city. The sheriff told me recently, Brady, I know I can ask you for anything because you really care about my deputies. Mm. And I do care about our deputies. Right. I and we just bought a hundred protective tactical gears vest for our sheriff's deputies. Our church did that Mm -hmm. because they didn't have it. They didn't have the gear necessary to protect their lives. I think that's a pro-life issue. So we saw that not as taking sides. We said, look, we have sheriff's deputies in our city that don't have the gear to protect them. It's a pro-life issue. We want to be pro-life in every respect. Right. Pro-life with the abortion issue, pro-life with the elderly, pro-life in every sense. And so we said, what if we just bought the gear for our deputies so that they could go home to their families at night and not be killed unnecessarily? And we did that. And now the sheriff, whenever he needs anything, he calls me first. He'll call (laughs) me on my cell phone and say, Brady, I know I can ask you for this because you care about my deputies. Those are the things I'm talking about. Now, maybe you can't buy a hundred, you know, tactical gears, vests for your, but you can buy one. Your church can buy two. And I'm just telling you, Things like that, when your community begins to see that your church deeply loves the community, um, it, it number one, it calms down the rhetoric. 
it calms down. You're, uh, the church is always going to be under attack because we bring good news into a bad news world. So don't ever uh, expect that we're going to be heroes in every sense. We mm-hmm. still are going to be attacked and there's still going to be persecution. But the goodwill that that builds with the leaders of your city and the access it gives you to people's hearts is, uh, is, is beyond anything I can describe. I'm just telling you it works. Love your people, love your community, and then the Great Commission happens naturally. That's that's good. That's awesome. One of the things that um, that you write about in the book, and then also you live out as I get to see you week in and week out, is this idea that um, sometimes we get uh, we can can have the temptation to get really caught up in being political advocates. Um, but but you recommend as we are living out our faith, um, not to be as concerned with being a political advocate as we are with being kind of prophetic voices within the political culture. Yes. Um, so, and because I was thinking about, you know, uh, what we've done in regard to um, assisting uh, police officers and buying those things. Some people can take those and turn them into political, you know, conversations. But can you talk to us a little bit about how how the church enters into things going on in the city without getting political, but with yes. being more prophetic? Yes, I can. And I, I think— the church has become partisan at its own. It's costing us because right. of how partisan we've become. I, I I tend to vote conservatively. I believe in small government, all those things. But however, I I believe that the church is is not called to be Republican or Democrat. I think we're called to be prophetic. Mm. And I I have made a choice out of my pulpit to rise above the political partisanship. And you know I think one of the biggest challenges that pastors have right now is how tribal. Our churches are becoming, yeah, and 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 to the to the expense of the Great Commission, we I think there are a lot of pastors and leaders that are more concerned about uh, people's votes than their salvation, mm. and I I mean that, right, and I know right. that sounds harsh, but that quite honestly, I'm praying for the salvation of the people in my city, and and their votes will follow. But my primary concern is not how they vote, but what they believe. Mm. And I'm, I'm trying to help Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, liberals, conservatives all find Christ. Right. And by the way, all those groups need Christ. Amen. And if you think that one group doesn't, <laughs> then, then you've already become partisan. You've already become blinded by partisanship. I think the pulpit is supposed to be prophetic. I, I believe my role in the pulpit is not to ignore politics. And that's a misunderstanding. Politics matter because policy affects people. Right. And the policies that happen because of politics can affect the poor and the marginalized. I mean, what what happens in Washington, D.C., what happens in our state capitol, what happens in our local governance will affect people in my community. And quite honestly, it's the powerless that get affected more. Mm -hmm. And so as the church, we're called to go to the margins and protect the powerless. Therefore, we should be concerned about politics. I want just laws to be passed because that's going to affect the widow, the single mom, the poor, the the immigrant, the migrant, the people who are who don't have the power to speak up for themselves, those policies will affect them. So politics are important. Therefore, as a pastor, I stand above the partisan noise mm-hmm. and call both parties, Democrats and Republicans, I call them into alignment with the scriptures. And both parties need to be called into alignment with the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And that's true. Don't neither party has the, the moral high ground on every issue. Right. And there are some issues where, you know, one of the parties will be, I think, uh, maybe better than others, but both parties need to be a called into a power corrupts everyone. Mm-hmm. And the church, 
should be the one, the beacon of truth, the beacon of hope in every community. Every politician should be listening to the church for direction, mm-hmm. where we call them into alignment with what Jesus said about the poor. What did Jesus say about the marginalized? How, what did, how did Jesus tell us to use our money for good, for not evil, for sharing, for not hoarding, uh, and this for generosity, uh, and not uh, not uh, uh, and not not to harm people, to help people. And so when we stand up and speak, we should be speaking as prophetic voices to both parties. Yeah, that's a good word, brother. Good word. Um, as we're closing down, any any final thoughts to share with um, with the pastors? And these are our colleagues, you know, pastors, ministry leaders. Any final thoughts you'd like to share with them? Well, I do. Uh, just this weekend, we had a miraculous moment at New Life. And I'm not telling you numbers because I'm bragging about numbers. I'm telling you this number because I wanted to encourage you. But we just baptized 237 people this past weekend at New Life. As we're recording this podcast, I'm coming off kind of a spiritual high this weekend. But that spiritual high was preceded by a lot of Sundays where I doubted myself. And I know there's probably a lot of pastors and leaders that walk away from their pulpits on the weekends wondering if their sermons, if their prayers, if their sacraments really were calling people to any change. Mm. And it's so discouraging as a pastor to preach your heart out, to preach strong, to preach with conviction, to preach with boldness, and not see the immediate change in people's lives. But what this weekend reminded me of is that God's doing holy work in sacred places even when we can't see it. Mm. And I want to remind the pastors and leaders who are listening to this podcast that God, by the work of his Holy Spirit, is able to do holy work in sacred and hidden spaces even when we can't see it. And there will be a time in your future that if you'll be faithful to preach the Scriptures with boldness, I think this is a time, by the way, Jason, for bold preaching. Mm. Don't water down your preaching. Don't try to be tricky and cool. (laughs) Be engaging, be winsome, be joyful, sure. Be happy, sure. But now is the time in the American pulpit for bold, convictional preaching. Preach with the boldness that 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 our forefathers preached with. Mm. If we want to see revival in our country, we want to see change, then preach with boldness. And don't be embarrassed about preaching with great conviction and strength out of our pulpit. And I know this. I've walked away so many Sundays going. I've, I've gone home and I've told my wife, I don't think that helped. I don't think it – I mean, just so many Sunday afternoon mm-hmm. thoughts, Monday morning resignation thoughts we right. all had, right? <laughs> but I, I saw this weekend with those baptisms – that God was actually doing some work in those people's hearts that I could not see on those Sundays. And it was so encouraging to see the fruit of the preaching and the fruit of the prayers and the discipleship that we've worked so hard at to do. We saw that emerge today, this past weekend with baptisms. And I want to encourage every discouraged pastor and leader that's that's, uh, listening today, be faithful, preach bold, preach strong, and trust that the Holy Spirit's doing great work in hidden places. Amen. It's a good word, brother. Well, love and appreciate you, Brady. Thank you for being with us on the Church Leaders Podcast. Jason, it is always a joy to be here and uh, so grateful for you and what you're doing. Love your work here. Thanks for equipping pastors to do better work. Amen. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us on this week's episode. Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast. And if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they too can benefit from these interviews. 
Again, we thank you in advance. And if you have any comments, any questions, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com, or you can connect with me on Twitter. Finally, you can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the Faith Play app. It's available for both Apple and Android, and so we encourage you to check that out as well. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.